Springtime in Japan is a time of reflection. As the cold winds of winter give way to the balmy breezes of summer, the people of Japan contemplate the nature of life and beauty in the centuries-old tradition of Hanami. The word Hanami literally translates to flower watching, and that's exactly what throngs of people do as cherry trees blossom in a pale pink wave across the island nation of Japan between the months of March and April every year. Of course, Hanami events are excuses to get together with friends, have a few drinks, and just take a little time out from busy lives, but the flowers at the center of the tradition have a special significance in Japan. Cherry blossoms, known in Japanese as sakura, have come to represent, among other things, the beauty and fleeting nature of life. Sakura trees are breathtakingly gorgeous when they bloom in mass, but the flowers only last for a couple of weeks before falling away in a snowstorm of withering petals. Like life, sakura season never lasts as long as we want it to. Therefore, we need to take time to appreciate it while it's here. And therefore, Japan has hanami. The significance of hanami and sakura have roots in various aspects of Japanese culture, including Buddhism, the samurai spirit of Bushido, and even the structure of its professional and educational society. I lived in Japan for about two years, a fact I can always seem to squeeze into any conversation I have, and even though I wasn't brought up with Hanami as part of my life, my interest in the Japanese culture and my time in the country definitely instilled a sense of respect for the tradition. I participated in Hanami during my time there, and every year since then I get a little nostalgic for those times when spring rolls around. With that in mind, I've decided to start something new here in the last theater. Now don't worry, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise retrospective is not ending. The rest of the episodes will come out on a weekly basis. But I've been wanting to talk about some other movies that I love for a very long time. I love films from all around the world, and I have a particular love for horror and other genre movies from Japan. There are a few Japanese horror movies in particular I've been wanting to talk about here on the show, but I've been waiting for just the right time. I figure there's no better time than Hanami, so starting now, in what I hope to make an annual tradition coinciding with the blooming of sakura trees in Japan, I'm going to be doing extra episodes all about Japanese genre movies. And boy do I have an interesting one to start with that ties into everything that I've just talked about in this intro. Tonight I'm going to talk about one of the most infamous splatter movies from Japan. It's a movie that became an urban legend around the world. It's a movie that has been mistaken for a real-life snuff movie, and it's a movie that has been blamed for real-life copycat murders. It's also a movie all about flowers. But instead of the pleasant pink flowers of sakura trees, this movie focuses on dark red flowers from a much more sinister source. If Hanami is all about celebrating the beauty of life, then this movie is all about celebrating beauty in death. Stick around to find out what I mean as I dissect the second movie of the infamous Japanese guinea pig series, Flower of Flesh and Blood, here in The Last Theater. Welcome once again to The Last Theater. My name is Chris, and I am very happy to bring you the first episode in what I've decided to call The Last Theater's Eigami. Eiga means movie in Japanese, so like Hanami means flower watching, Eigami means movie watching, but in Japanese, because I'll be talking about Japanese movies. Well, I think it's clever anyway, but of course, if this is your first time listening to The Last Theater, head over to cnjradio.com to check out all the other episodes we've done. We're finally closing in on 50 episodes, so there's a lot to listen to. 
Like I mentioned, Joey and I are also in the middle of our Nightmare on Elm Street series, so go start listening to those because there are a lot more on the way. And at cnjradio.com, you can find links to other podcasting platforms where you can listen to the show, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and whatever else. But now, let's dig into tonight's movie. Flower of Flesh and Blood is a splatter movie released on home video in Japan in 1985. It's almost a plotless movie. It's not really about anything, and very little happens other than long, graphic sequences of nearly emotionless bodily dismemberment for about 40 minutes. From a certain perspective, it can be seen as little more than a way to display a series of well-done and very bloody gore effects, but I really do think there's more going on than just a technical filmmaking exhibition. There is a little bit of a story to support what we're watching, and the way the movie's content is approached is artful in its own way. Of course, some people will scoff at hearing me use the word artful with a movie like this, but I do think it's appropriate. I will warn you though, Flower of Flesh and Blood deals with extremely graphic violence, so even just hearing me talk about it might put off some listeners. The movie opens with a scroll telling us that the director of the film we're about to see received a package in April of 1985, right in the middle of cherry blossom season. The director is legendary horror manga writer and artist Hideshi Hino, and we are told through the opening text that the package he received was from a fan. The contents of the package consisted of a letter, 54 photographs, and an 8mm film of an actual murder. Hino felt like he needed to share what he saw with the world, but knowing he couldn't and shouldn't release footage of a real-life murder to the world, he decided to recreate what he saw instead. Hino's recreation is the movie that we are about to see. Now, from what I've read online, the original release of Flower and Flesh and Blood didn't have this opening text disclaimer. It's really difficult to tell if that's true or not, though. Some information about this movie isn't necessarily difficult to find online, but reliable information is difficult to determine. The theme of unreliable background information is something that I'll inevitably have to revisit throughout this episode, but more on that as we go. The version of the movie I'm most familiar with is the DVD release from Unearthed Films, and the opening text is in that version, so that's what I'm going with. After the disclaimer, we are shown footage that appears to be a handheld found footage style recording of a woman being stalked through the streets of Tokyo. In a brief montage, the woman is isolated, chased down, and abducted. When the woman wakes up, she is gagged and tied to a bed. She's in a small, filthy room with gruesome paintings hanging among numerous blood splatters on the walls. Beyond the foot of the woman's bed is a man wearing a black apron and a cheap-looking black samurai helmet. His face is painted white, and some of his teeth are kind of comically blacked out. His thin mustache completes the bizarre vibe the man is giving off, and the array of knives and other implements of destruction by his side convey the danger he represents. Calmly and quietly, the man credited only as the samurai, drugs the woman so she's practically unconscious, and then he proceeds to cut her apart piece by piece. Before each segment of dismemberment, the man in the samurai helmet talks directly to the camera, addressing the audience. He talks about the beautiful flowers of blood that will soon be blooming all over the woman's body. He apparently thinks of himself as an artist of sorts, and he describes in brief detail the beauty of his work. First, he talks about dark red flowers blooming on the woman's wrist, then he cuts off her hands. Next, he talks about full blooms on her shoulders, and he proceeds to cut and chisel off her arms. Finally, the man smiles slightly as he talks about his final act of wrapping flowers around the woman's, quote, 
pedal as he saws off her legs, disembowels her, and decapitates her. After reveling in his art and having a smoke, the man shows us his collection. In another room, the man has been collecting body parts from women for a very long time. There are eyeballs in jars, various body parts in tanks, and there are some segments of bodies set up as sort of flower arrangements with worms crawling around inside them. The movie then ends where it begins, with footage of another woman being stalked in the streets. And so, the cycle of life, death, and rebirth begins all over again. Now, if this doesn't sound like a movie you'd be interested in watching, I don't really blame you. It's not a movie for everyone. In fact, I think it's pretty safe to say it's a movie for relatively few people. There are certainly more transgressive, disgusting, and reprehensible movies out there, but Flower of Flesh and Blood is designed to evoke certain negative reactions from audiences. If that's your thing, that's great. I think there's a curiosity factor at play with people, like myself, who seek out movies like this. I've seen Flower of Flesh and Blood a few times, and I even did a written review for it back when I first watched it about five years ago. I wouldn't say I enjoy the movie, because enjoy feels like the wrong word to use, but I do appreciate it. I appreciate the well-done gore effects, and I appreciate the way it creates a tone unlike many other movies I've ever seen. With its long shots of sustained brutality perpetrated by an emotionless man on a drugged and nearly unconscious woman, Flower of Flesh and Blood forces viewers to focus solely on the actions taking place. While most horror movies might focus on the terror of the victim, or even the satisfaction of the killer, this movie intentionally removes emotions from the proceedings. I think in that way, we are meant to more closely feel what the man in the samurai helmet feels, which, according to his subdued reactions, isn't a whole lot. At least, he doesn't feel for his victim. Not in a way you might expect. The man says at one point early in the movie that the drug he injected the woman with is causing her to be lost in a state of ecstasy. It feels like he tells us this to reassure us in some way that the woman feels no pain and is even enjoying the experience. It's like he's saying this for our sake rather than for his own or for the woman's. Of course, we don't have to believe him, but the reactions of the woman throughout the movie from the time she's drugged up until her death don't do anything to dispute what he said. We see her gently writhe on the bed, and the only audible reactions from her are a few soft moans here and there whenever the man is cutting into her. There's definitely an undercurrent of sensuality in her movements, but it's always very subdued and very brief. There's no nudity in the movie, and the focus is not on the woman as a sexual object. Not initially, anyway. Initially, the focus is on her just as an object. During the course of her dismemberment, the various parts of the woman's body are often shown in very tight close-ups. This achieves a few things. For one, it highlights the superb effects done by Hino's crew. When limbs are detached, the screen is filled with images of bones and tendons being pulled apart. Blossoms of dark red blood pulse from the wounds and shine on the pale skin of the woman as well as the bright white sheets of her bed. The close-ups not only show the violence in gruesome detail, but they also hide the fact, of course, that the limbs being cut aren't real and aren't actually attached to the woman. The skin can look a touch rubbery and less than real at times, but it's still great effects work. I don't know what it really looks like for someone's hand to be cut off, and I never want to know, but what it looks like in this movie is sufficiently gross and disturbing. Another thing the repeated close-ups do is to further objectify the woman. When the screen is filled with just the skin of the woman's leg, for example, we can become detached from the person the leg is supposed to be attached to. 
We know nothing about this woman and never even hear her speak, so it's uncomfortably easy to see the contents of these close-up shots merely as objects. And making the audience uncomfortable is what Flower of Flesh and Blood does best. At least, for me, that's what it does best. I say it's good at making people feel uncomfortable more so than saying it's shocking or disgusting, mostly because of who I perceive as its intended audience. Flower of Flesh and Blood was not made for mainstream audiences. I mean, I have a really hard time imagining casual movie watchers reading the write-up or seeing some screenshots and being like, yeah, I'll spend the better part of an hour watching that. No, this movie is made for horror fans who are looking for something different. So in my eyes, the people that are going to watch are already pretty well versed in horror. Blood and guts aren't really going to phase them, so there needed to be something different added to the mix to make the movie memorable. As I said, the removal of the plot and story combined with the extreme objectification of the characters make this different from the usual attempts at gross-out horror often seen in the splatter genre. There is no real emotional thread to grab onto, so even though the majority of the people watching the movie will be fine with the violence and gore, the thrill you might get from a typical horror movie killer slashing someone up is absent. It feels more clinical in a way, and the absence of emotions forces you to think about why you're watching. And if you're enjoying it, why are you enjoying it? Those were some of the questions that creeped into my mind the first time I saw Flower of Flesh and Blood. In a way, the movie can be kind of like a Rorschach test. It doesn't tell you how to think or feel, so what do you get out of watching it? Lots of people might get nothing, but I think a lot of other people will definitely get something. What each person gets is something only they can answer. But the fact that its infamy has endured for over three decades after its initial release is a clear indication that people are still getting something from it. Of course, the legacy of Flower of Flesh and Blood isn't just because it's a surprisingly well-made, no-budget splatter movie. Its effect on the real world outside the confines of its runtime have a lot to do with why people still talk about it to this day. When Flower of Flesh and Blood was released to video stores in Japan in 1985, it became an underground hit. It sold well enough and created enough of a buzz that people outside the horror community started to pay attention to it. As Hideshi Hino has himself talked about in interviews, the movie was at some point withdrawn from video stores after it had been examined by certain boards of education and deemed to be too horrific. Like I said, mainstream audiences, especially at the time, were sure to be shocked and disgusted by Flower of Flesh and Blood, but Hino didn't necessarily intend to make a movie just to shock or disgust people. According to Hino himself in multiple interviews, he wanted to create a more story-driven movie that had drama to support the horror. Hino wanted to create movies ever since he was a child, and he cited Akira Kurosawa as one of his biggest influences. With a master storyteller like Kurosawa to look up to, you can imagine Hino wanted to do a lot when he was finally given his first opportunity to write and direct a movie after years of working as a manga artist. Unfortunately for Hino, his first film would come with some extreme limitations which caused him to alter his plans. At this point, it's probably necessary to give a little more background information surrounding Flower of Flesh and Blood's origins. The movie is part of a series called the Guinea Pig series. There are six movies, plus a best-of compilation and a couple of behind-the-scenes documentaries detailing how the special effects were done. And all of these movies were released between 1985 and 1991. The first two movies in the series stand out from the rest, though. Both were released in quick succession in 1985, and both share a pseudo-snuff film construction. Flower of Flesh and Blood was actually the second guinea pig movie released. 
A man by the name of Satoru Ogura produced, wrote, and directed the first movie in the series titled The Devil's Experiment. Now, I've seen it, and I really don't like it very much. The basic premise is similar to Flower of Flesh and Blood, but it's not done nearly as well. In The Devil's Experiment, a group of men kidnap a young woman and subject her to a series of tortures. Their methods of torture range from spinning her in an office chair and playing loud music to pouring hot oil on her and smashing her hand with a hammer. There's little artistry to it, and it really does just feel like violence for the sake of violence. Plus, some of the tortures are just goofy, and punches and kicks are laughably fake, and even though some of the gore effects are decent, especially the final one, there are very few shown in its about 45-minute runtime. If you're going to watch a movie in the guinea pig series, definitely start with number two and just skip the first one. Unless you're a completionist like me, who can't seem to watch anything in a series without watching the entire series. Anyway... Ogura was a fan of Hideshi Hino's manga work, so he contacted Hino about possibly writing and directing a movie to follow up The Devil's Experiment. The timeline is a little unclear to me because different interviews seem to give slightly different versions of how and when Ogura and Hino came together, but my understanding is that Hino began working on Flower of Flesh and Blood before The Devil's Experiment was even released. Ogura wanted to get two movies out back to back so his proposed series could start off strong. Wanting to be a filmmaker anyway, Hino quickly agreed to Ogura's proposal. Ogura produced Hino's guinea pig movie, but Hino was completely in charge of the creative decisions. He'd apparently already written a story, but he quickly learned that he wouldn't be able to afford to shoot what he wanted to. Ogura limited Hino to one main location for the shoot that had to be done in five days. The limitations forced Hino to rewrite and scale back his movie considerably. It's unclear what Hino might have created given a larger budget and more time, but to me, I think the limitations were a good thing. Hino didn't have any experience as a filmmaker, and the limitations forced Hino to get creative in order to bring his vision to life. Hino knew he wanted to make something no one had ever seen before on a budget so small, and that's what led him to make the decision to remove any sense of emotion or morality from the movie and to focus on the cold, bloody acts themselves. That unique approach and the necessity of shooting with only two cast members in one room makes the movie work well when a more narrative-driven approach covering the same basic plot probably wouldn't have succeeded as well. To be sure, the movie could still have failed. Just look at The Devil's Experiment for a movie with the same limitations that just doesn't work very well. But even though Hino might have been an experienced filmmaker, he had a great sense of style and imagery. Being a manga artist known for an unnerving mix of cartoonish characters and ultraviolence, Hino's visual sense carries Flower of Flesh and Blood into some very memorable moments. Like the man in the samurai helmet in this movie, Hideshi Hino creates art out of the grotesque. Some people won't see it, but it's absolutely there. Enough people did see Flower of Flesh and Blood, though, and it eventually became a bit of a controversial topic around the world. The most famous story has been told and retold so many times that it's become an urban legend of sorts. I don't remember the first time I heard about Flower of Flesh and Blood, but I'm pretty sure it was in conjunction with the story I'm about to share. In the early 90s, a certain famous actor is said to have seen Flower of Flesh and Blood and mistook it for a real-life snuff movie. That actor was Charlie Sheen, and as the legend goes, he reported his findings to the FBI. The details around the story were fuzzy at best, as is the case with most urban legends like this. I don't think I believed the story much when I first heard about it because it's so oddly specific about Charlie Sheen being the person fooled by the movie, 
but it turns out there is a lot of truth to this story. In the early 2000s, Chaz Ballin, a late writer who contributed to various magazines like Fangoria and wrote many books about extreme horror, came out with what he claims to be the true story behind the Charlie Sheen urban legend. Ballin says that someone requested that he make a compilation tape of the most extreme and disgusting scenes from horror movies so he could show it at a party. Ballin obliged, and clips from Flower of Flesh and Blood made it onto that tape. The tape was a hit, and it started to get passed around to various people throughout California. Apparently, many people started to think the clips of Flower and Flesh and Blood might be real, but it wasn't until the tape ended up in the hands of Charlie Sheen that the FBI got involved. Ballin says a friend of his warned him that he would be getting a call from the FBI, but that call never came. On the other side of the world, Hideshi Hino also heard about the rumors of Charlie Sheen being freaked out by his movie. Hino also says he never got contacted by any American law enforcement, but he was assured the FBI had already taken action and had discovered that the movie was just a movie. So did any of it really happen? Who knows. But it's a story that has endured and will forever be linked to Flower of Flesh and Blood. Regardless of whether or not Charlie Sheen actually saw the movie, I've never seen any interviews where he talked about it, I think it's a fun story. Unfortunately, Flower of Flesh and Blood will also be forever linked with a much more tragic story that we know actually did occur. Between 1988 and 1989, Japanese serial killer Miyazaki murdered four girls between the ages of four and seven. I'm not going to go into the details about everything he did, you can look him up online if you want to know, but what he did was more gruesome and horrific than any of the fake murders I've talked about tonight. Miyazaki was arrested in 1989, but before that, people in Japan were understandably shaken by the brutality of the murders that had been discovered. As Hideshi Hino recounts in an interview with Darkside Magazine, word got to the police that the murders seemed an awful lot like the murder in Flower of Flesh and Blood. With apparently no real leads to go on, the police began to question Hino's crew. Hino agreed to talk to the police about the psychology of his main character, but before that interview occurred, Miyazaki was arrested. Hino thought that that would be the end of it, but reporters investigating Miyazaki discovered thousands of videotapes he'd collected over the years. The reporters focused on the anime and horror movies in his collection, and a moral panic was created. The case was dubbed the Otaku Murders, otaku being a fairly derogatory term in Japan that's used to describe people obsessed with, well, any particular subject, but is often associated with anime and manga. Otaku culture began to be scrutinized and even feared in a way. Japanese newscasts focused on Miyazaki's interest in horror movies and violent anime, even though those types of tapes were only part of his huge collection, and Hideshi Hino got involved once again when it was reported that a copy of Flower of Flesh and Blood was found in Miyazaki's room. Hino was questioned by police, but there obviously wasn't anything tying Hino to the murders. In fact, the police later admitted that it wasn't Flower of Flesh and Blood that was found in Miyazaki's possession. It was actually another movie from the Guinea Pig series, one of the later ones that ended up being more of a comedy than a horror movie. Hino says that the police were very dismissive of him when he complained about how he was treated and how he was unfairly connected with such a horrific series of crimes. According to Hino, the police told him that he's probably happy since the murders made his movie such a hot topic, basically telling him that he's profiting off the murder of four young girls. This is another point where the story gets a little confusing, though. I've also read interviews where Hino says he found out later that Miyazaki did have a copy of Flower of Flesh and Blood, but that he claims to have never watched it. So once again, who knows what really happened? 
Regardless, the infamy of Hideshi Hino's movie will always be at least partially associated with the otaku murders. And I think that brings us to somewhat of a full circle in this episode. To me, Flower of Flesh and Blood is a movie that forces the viewer to look at violence from a different perspective. We're looking at how inhuman humans can be. The man in the samurai helmet doesn't seem to have human emotions, and the woman is objectified to the point of being little more than a tool used by the man to create his artwork. Emotions and morality are absent, and it's meant in many ways to evoke the feeling of watching a true life snuff movie. If you actually watch it, it's clearly not real though. There are too many edits and camera setups that would be impossible if it were a real snuff movie, but the feeling is still there. Even though I think it's dangerously irresponsible to judge and condemn a movie in the way the Japanese press did with Flower of Flesh and Blood, a small part of me can at least understand that initial reaction. I don't agree with it, but I can sort of understand it. Flower of Flesh and Blood is a movie that holds a mirror up to the audience. It challenges the viewer by making them question why they want to watch it. And if the viewers are questioning themselves, then it's not a far stretch to understand that some other people will look at those viewers and have some questions about them. That part, I get. I just don't think you can judge someone by what they choose to watch, or listen to, or play, or whatever. Just like Flower of Flesh and Blood holds a mirror up to the viewer, I think it also holds a mirror up to those who know about it but probably haven't seen it. The people who judge and condemn. The stigma around the movie and otaku in general in Japan in the late 80s can tell us something about the people who perpetuated that stigma. They're scared of what they don't understand or don't know how to control. I think this holds true with pretty much any moral panic, be it the video nasties in the United Kingdom in the 80s, video games after the Columbine shootings, or whatever. Some people are always looking for easy explanations and scapegoats. I think it's incredibly interesting that a cheap, straight-to-video splatter movie from 1985 could have had that kind of effect on people. I think in a way it's a testament to the vision and talent of Hideshi Hino. Sorry if that got a little heavy, but a movie like Flower of Flesh and Blood elicits some heavy feelings. I think it's more complex than even Hino himself gives himself credit for. When asked about the movie, he often talks about what he wanted to do before he found out about the limitations he'd have to shoot under. Or he talks about how a lot of things in the movie don't really mean anything. For example, when asked about the samurai helmet the killer wears in the movie, Hino says it's just supposed to represent the fact that the man is insane. I get that, but I think you can tie it into other things. There was an intentional choice by Hino to introduce the movie by saying he received the grizzly package from his fan during cherry blossom season. As I said before, part of the meaning behind Hanami and Cherry Blossom Season involves the spirit of Bushido, Samurai. Also, Samurai often practice flower arranging as part of their way of life, something the man in the movie does as well. Even if Hino didn't do it intentionally, it's all tied together. His movie is a meditation on life and death, just like Hanami. Well, not just like Hanami, but we're looking through a dark and distorted lens of what Hanami means. Or maybe that lens is a mirror. And with that, I think I've said about all I have to say about Flower of Flesh and Blood. It's a movie that has stuck with me over the years, but it's not necessarily a movie I would recommend for everyone. I think I've made it abundantly clear what you can expect if you do decide to watch, so proceed with as much caution as you think is necessary. I will say the movie is difficult to find on DVD if you're like me and still love physical media. I treated myself to what is apparently a more rare version of the release by Unearthed Films a few years ago. There are two covers for their version, a cover with a painting and another with a still image of the victim and a lot of gore. I got the gore version. 
There's also a box set out there of the entire guinea pig series I sometimes see pop up on eBay, but it's always way too expensive for me. The movies after Flower of Flesh and Blood got pretty comical though, and I don't like them as much, so I'm not interested in spending a whole lot on that box set. I've only seen the first four though, and I understand that Hideshi Hino returned to the series with a more narrative-driven story, but I haven't seen it yet. I do like the DVD I have of Flower of Flesh and Blood though, and that's enough to satisfy me for now. There are some easter eggs on the disc if you do happen to have it, one of which is a different cut of the movie called Snuff Vision. It's a much shorter version, about 20 minutes or so total, that cuts out the man talking to the camera and focuses almost solely on the gore. The transfer looks like a degraded VHS tape, so it really tries to give the feel of what it might have been like to see a copy of a copy of the original release back in the 80s. It's a welcome addition, though it's not better than the normal cut. And of course, I'm sure you can find the movie online somewhere if you're curious. It's famous enough that it shouldn't be too difficult to find. Something else you can find online is cnjradio.com, the home of The Last Theater, where the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise retrospective will continue in the next episode you hear. Check out cnjradio.com for all of the CNJ Radio podcasts, and talk to me over on Twitter at The Last Theater. I plan to talk about some more Japanese genre movies before the month is over, so let me know if you have any suggestions for something I need to see. For now, though, I'm going to go watch something light and pleasant to clear my brain palate after talking about so much darkness. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Oh.